Hello and welcome to another episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I'll be conducting a conversation with one of the UK's busiest conductors. When he is not guesting or recording with most of the great orchestras of the United Kingdom, he conducts the orchestra that bears his name. It is a great pleasure to chat with John Wilson. John, what a pleasure to speak to you. Pleasure is all mine, Mike. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. Uh, not a problem. I wonder whether we could go right back to the beginning and you could tell us how music came into your life. I think it's fair to say that I don't remember a time when music wasn't a part of my life. I certainly don't remember a time when I didn't respond to music. My earliest memories of being a toddler are reacting to television theme tunes, like shaking myself out of my uh, high chair when a when the music to the news came on and stuff like that. And then when I was four years old, the first thing that I did when I, when, when we went to visit my grandparents is I'd run over to the piano and lift the lid up and, and bash away. You, I mean, I, I used to dream about the piano keyboard at my granny's. And I was always saying, can we go, can we go? Because they had a piano and we didn't. And right through school, just always spare time playing the piano and then learning to be percussion player at my next school so it was just always part of my life were you taught the piano no i was i had a kind of like natural affinity with the keyboard it's not to say i was any good but I, it just made sense to me it was a logical sort of thing and i remember being about four and a half five i was very young for my year uh, at school and i said to the class teacher one morning in the playground um Mrs. Wilkie, I can play the piano with two hands. And she said, well, I think you better come and show me. And I, <laughs> she, she took me into the school assembly hall and it was one of those, you know, uh, bright yellow pianos with a sort of a tapestry on the back. And she yeah. lifted the lid and I sat on the chair and I, my feet wouldn't touch the pedals. And I just sort of played sort of rudimentary, whatever it was on the piano, chords in my left hand, melody in my right hand. And she rang my parents up you know, that day she said, look, we think your son's got some kind of uh, unusual musical gift. And, and my parents took some advice and they said, you know, just, just let it, don't pressure him. Just let it, let it sort of happen. See what direction it goes in. And so it was just part of, part of what I did when I was sort of not at school. You know, I'd be either at school or when I was at school, when I wasn't at school, I'd be playing on my bike or I'd be playing with my Lego or I'd be bashing away on the piano and that was kind of, and I never had any lessons not until I went to the Royal College of Music and um by which time of course I was a, a lost cause <laughs> so, yes. so piano piano playing has has always been my hobby even though you know it encroaches on my professional life I mean I, I made my living as a pianist when I was at college playing in restaurants and bars and things just to make some money and I play for rehearsals sometimes for singers um but I never get. I never have to sort of think about the piano. I get stressed about it. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice relationship. My relationship with the piano. And then after school, um, you went to college. Um, I'm assuming a sixth form college or a, or something like that. Is that where conducting maybe started for you? Around about that time, I was doing a lot of kind of am drama and amateur orchestras as percussionist and. There was one group locally where the pianist pulled out and they knew I played the piano a bit. So they rang me and said, could I come and do the rehearsals? So I did. And then the conductor pulled out and they said, could I conduct? And I 
I hadn't a clue, but my mate, um, Gavin Sutherland, the trombone player and pianist, was, was in the band and he conducted the wind band a bit. He gave me some lessons on how to conduct this musical show, No No Nanette, and I, had, I hadn't a clue what I was doing. And um, I don't know how old I was, but I remember doing the first rehearsal and thinking, oh yes, this is, this is what I'm meant to be doing. And from that moment, when, when that was, I don't know, 87 or something like that, I knew that's what I was going to do. And then I did my A-levels in a sixth form college, which happened to have a music department. So I ended up getting lots of players together and doing concerts with them. We did some quite, you know, big stuff, symphonies and what have you. Uh, and I still hadn't a clue what I was doing. It was only <laughs> after I started, it was only after I went to college and I had some, you know, proper tuition that I began to realise how presumptuous I'd been and actually daring to stand in front of all these players and wave my arms about. But that's that's something else. So after the Royal College, um initially not as a conductor, is that correct? Um well no, I I went to the Royal College of Music as a percussionist and then I I mean I was basically sort of serving my time because it was the instrument that I studied, but I knew I was never going to do it. And I always knew that my professional life would be as a conductor and an arranger. And I was, um, you know, I'd always done that kind of work, orchestrating other people's music. And so I did my degree. After the end of my first two years, I changed studies from percussion to composition. And I did my undergrad as a composer whilst studying, conducting kind of informally and then properly as my postgrad. And I, knew I was never going to be a composer either. I didn't want to be a composer. Um, but the discipline of writing um, music and doing lots of orchestration and uh, really learning the sort of craft of how scores are laid out was, was the, the best possible training I could have had, really. And who was your teacher at the Royal College of Music in conducting? Neil Thompson, who... I learned more from Lee than I did uh, anybody else, really, because he was, I mean, when I look back at that time and think how fortunate we all were to have a teacher who was not only a, a brilliant teacher and so thorough and so uh, disciplined with us all, but, but such a great conductor himself. Um, so it was, you, you learned so much just watching his rehearsals, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it was, it was a, It was a revelation to me that a conductor could have such a cohesive relationship with an orchestra, you know, and a con- that, that conductor could have his own sound. It was the first time I'd ever really, I'd ever really seen that happen. I mean, the way he made those college orchestras sound, I'll never forget, we still talk about it. Those of us who were at the college then still talk about just how marvellous those orchestras sounded. And did Neil concentrate on one particular aspect of conducting? For instance, some teachers are very heavily biased towards score learning and less towards the physical gesture teaching or uh, or was he an all-round great teacher did he teach you stick technique and the you know the rigorous process of learning a score uh you know i think you it was very important that we didn't ever separate technique from anything else because technique was about information was about showing what's in the music to the players i mean anything else is just beating but for us you know, the, the stress was on who needs your help at this point? What do you have to extract 
from the score into your hands and eyes and gestures and and how do you get how do you fill your hands with information and information only and so that there's nothing else so that there's nothing else which is unnecessary um so it was to to use a uh trendy word it was holistic but without in any way um being anything other than completely practical we had to do a lot of work on um really basic fundamental technical things which was grueling you know making sure that you're covering the covering the the the, the space evenly at incredibly slow tempos and this basic concept of, of beat speed and hand position all of that and whilst being laborious at the time is something i i genuinely have cause to be grateful for for the rest of my life because you don't stand in front of madam butterfly for the first time and not have had all of that kind of technical stuff really drilled into you so towards the end of your time at the royal college of music I know that you were playing the piano, as you said earlier, in hotels and bars and restaurants. Um, but around this time, you also formed your own orchestra, the John Wilson Orchestra. How did that come about? That came around as a kind of extension of playing in hotels and bars and restaurants because uh, a couple of the hotels we played in, they would like a piano and a violinist, which was me and Andrew Havron, and then they wanted a, a little jazz trio or a quintet, and it kind of kept expanding until... Um, the Royal Garden Hotel gave us enough money and the opportunity to put together a small orchestra, about 20 players. And that was the first time the John Wilson Orchestra had done a kind of, got a regular gig, even though we'd done stuff, done the odd one-off concert. Um, and it was just me and my two sets of pals, pals from the college who were basically string players, and then Matt Skelton and his friends who were on the jazz course, um, I think at the academy, yeah, and um, we didn't have a jazz course at the Royal College, and we all wanted to play this music that we all knew and loved, you know, arrangements by Nelson Riddle and Billy May and Robert Farnan and all those kind of uh, studio arrangers who wrote good stuff, and of course nobody was playing it, but there was something on on those old sort of Nelson Riddle, Frank Sinatra records that we all admired from different angles. The jazz players loved the, the you know, the time playing of the, of the drummer and, and Andrew Havron loved Felix Slapkins, idolized his playing. And, and so we wanted our own little kind of go at that kind of thing. So it started as a, as a hobby and then it caught on in a, in a very small way. And, and we used to do gigs in the Peter on the Park and so jazz festival as it then was and then we just kept going until we eventually got the gig that made everybody in the UK listening to the music aware of us, which was the problems. But that was 15 years after we'd started, you know. Well, I mean, as somebody who played in your orchestra two or three times, firstly, may I say that everybody in that orchestra was there because they loved the music that they were playing. Absolutely everybody. Um, Often they were handpicked by you. you. You would come up to me, I think, and said, you know, would you, would you be interested in playing my orchestra? And of course, once you do start playing with everybody in the room is is all sitting on the same page. There's nobody there who doesn't want to play it. There's nobody there who thinks it's beneath them. What you get is that corporate sort of enthusiasm for it. And I have to say it was the best string section that I ever played in. 
ever. That's the vibe, really, in as much as it's full of players who really respect that music. And you can't really place enough emphasis on how important the playing is in that repertoire. It's not like yeah. an Elgar symphony or a Beethoven symphony where Elgar and Beethoven will always be greater than any performance you can give of it. With light music, everything has to be dispatched really expertly so that the effort isn't sort of apparent. It's just got to be done with such sort of style and um, panache. It's very difficult, as you know, as, you, as, a, as a fiddle player. Um, as a, are you an ex-fiddle player? Do you still play the violin? I don't know. I'm not I am a, definitely an ex-fiddle player. I retired six years ago, and to say I've barely played it since um, would be completely true. There's one sitting on my desk right next to me now. I, you know, I might pick it up to try a bowing or something. But the one thing yeah, I do right. miss is playing stuff like uh, the we that we did, you know, in the concerts I played with you, um, which is yeah. just so exciting to play. Um, it's so well written for the instruments. That's yeah, the thing, and of yeah. course, a lot of the the great light music orchestras and the movie orchestras had the best players money could buy. So the, the, the composers and the arrangers, of course, wrote to their strengths and in some instances uh, pushed the players to the edges of their <laughs> yeah. abilities. You know, I remember doing that Tom and Jerry, that Tom and Jerry suite that I did in the, in the proms. I remember for, a, for a quite a while, we weren't sure if it was going to happen because it was, it was technically so wall of death that we just, mm. <laughs> we didn't know if we were going to make it. From the start, I'm assuming that you were arranging and orchestrating things for your own orchestra, for the smaller group. But then as it went on, um, your name became very well known for orchestrating some of the lost music of MGM. Something that's peculiar to you, really, as a conductor. Not many other people do this. I never wanted to uh, sit at my desk and slave away over 300 and what have you scores of MGM film musicals, but I, I programmed them in the concert in 2002 before I realized that the music didn't exist. Um, it was at the Queen Elizabeth Hall and it was a concert uh, devoted to all the great American arrangers and Conrad Salinger, who was the chief orchestrator at MGM, had to be featured and it was only when I did my researches that I realized they destroyed the music library, a story I've told so many times, nobody needs to hear it again. But um, there was nothing for me to do other than to sit down and sort of produce the notes for the pieces that I wanted to do. Um, what became apparent quite quickly was that in the genre of musicals for films that these MGM musicals were right at the top of the tree. And why they're important is that films like Singing in the Rain or The Wizard of Oz, um, you've got the original versions of those songs happening in the original orchestrations. They are the kind of purest forms of those songs. And songs have always fascinated me from the word go have been right at the center of my kind of musical life. And I think the songs of Gershwin and Cole Porter and Harold Arlen and mm -hmm. Richard Rogers and Jerome Kern and Irving Berlin. They're as important to the 20th century as Schubert's songs were to his. And so I felt I had a kind of uh, an obligation to restore these destroyed scores so that they could eventually be played in concert and people could see just what sort of classy stuff this was. 
and of course it went from songs to then being songs and dance routines and then big ballads and all the underscoring and all that so i did get stuck in over a 20-year period getting as much of this music uh ready for performance as i could because obviously i needed it for the orchestra to, to play we were playing concerts at proms and doing tours and things like that um and if I talk in the past tense, it's because I've now done all of that work. Mm. I've I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've I've done over three hundred numbers, and that, that that's as much as anybody needs to do. Yeah, I think you've definitely earned a rest from it now after three hundred numbers. Yeah, because it's a hell of a labour, you know. I mean, admittedly, towards you know, once we got going all that, I had brilliant people working with me: uh, Andrew Cotty and Paul Campbell and. Uh, lately, Simon Nathan, who who are all experts, and without them, I obviously I couldn't have made half the deadlines. But um, it's there now; it's all done. I mean, I know from one experience with one concert how laborious it is. Uh, in Birmingham, with the CBSO, we wanted to do a concert of the songs of Mohammed Rafi, who was a Bollywood playback singer. But it, like the MGM problem that you had, there was no music; there were no dots. So the librarian of the CBSO sat down and listened to them all and transcribed them by ear. And over five or six meetings over a 12-month period, he would come around and, and he'd play me what he'd written and then we'd listen to the original and argue over one chord. You know, no, that's not, oh, yeah, sure. not a B7. It's, yeah. you know, it's got something else in there. What is yeah. that chord? You know, it takes hours and days of your life. Yeah, you build up muscle as you go, but that's the thing about... Yeah. Uh, especially if you're dealing in one idiom. Yes, so of course. With yeah. those Hollywood scores, you know, you've got to know the style and how the whole thing works. So it became... And I ended up also having these great guys to work with who who also became steeped in the idiom. So you, you we, we had a, a team of, of people who really could could pull these things together. Great to hear them played though with a you know with an expert orchestra. Oh god, yeah. And a chorus and all that, you know. Yeah. I mean, these these are the, uh, arrangers and composers who really knew everything there was to know about how the orchestra works. It's incredibly rewarding to play. As the John Wilson Orchestra is growing in reputation, you are now starting to guest conduct with orchestras, but not doing the lighter music or the MGM or the musical stuff. Um, about what time did that start, and who would have been your first guest um, orchestras that you worked with? Well, you know, it was actually before John Wilson Orchestra, really, that I started conducting, because it's worth making the point that I didn't go to the Royal College of Music to, to study like music that was always a kind of if not my hobby it was certainly my dessert never mm. the main course yeah. and um my first professional engagements i got in my i would say early 20s i remember being asked to conduct the city of london symphonia in tilbury fort because somebody went take doing sort of laughing at the problems type things i think that was very early in a concert at st john smith square doing some uh sullivan and elgar and and of course my the, the sort of i suppose the most important break i had was when eric coates's son austin coates uh invited me to make the first uh cd recordings 
for uh, ASV, it was, or there with the BBC Concert Orchestra in sort of in the mid 90s, I'd be like 23, I think. Um, because I'd already got an association with, with English music, and then um, that led me to uh, gigs with the Liverpool Phil and uh, the Halle. I did a lot of concerts for the Halle between, and Liverpool between two, the, the 2000 and 2010, doing, I mean, I did a lot in Liverpool, but I remember in the Halle, I did it sort of, I was there 12 times a year at, at some point, doing every possible kind of uh, repertoire. And in Birmingham, I was there yes, when you yeah. remember the orchestra. And and then I um, uh, obviously started working further afield a, a, abroad and um, it never really, it was always, it always ran alongside what I was doing with the John Wilson Orchestra. And when, you know, when the John Wilson Orchestra got better known through playing at the proms, of course, I had to sort of, um, I had to organize my diary sort of <laughs> very carefully so that I wouldn't be conducting the CBSO uh, one week and then being in the symphony hall with my orchestra the next. So it all took a bit of careful planning. You have been a principal conductor of the RTE Concert Orchestra and the Royal Northern Symphonia, and you are associate guest conductor with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Did you enjoy being principal conductor of an orchestra? How did you find it? What were the challenges? Um, I enjoyed very much um, the job I had in well, all my positions I've, I've had. I've, been, I've enjoyed otherwise I wouldn't have taken them. But in Dublin, um, you know, I was there for quite a long time in as much as that I was principal guest conductor before I was uh, principal conductor and I'd been doing a lot of work as a guest there. And there were quite a few challenges when I first started in that I really wanted to sort of broaden the orchestra's repertoire in both directions and really sort of uh, get stuck in and rehearse thoroughly. And I had some of the most satisfying concerts of my of my life when I was in Dublin because the orchestra was completely up for it, completely open-minded uh, and some fabulous players in the orchestra, that wonderful leader, Mia Cooper, who just yeah. just a dream, you know, leader I love, there, and uh, you know, some very talented women brass players. And uh, I think by the time I'd been there a few years, I felt confident to take on almost anything with 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 the RC concert orchestra. And we really did. We did everything from Beethoven symphonies through to hello dolly you know <laughs> we did the lot and um and operas and symphonies and concertos everything it's, it's so much great repertoire and um and of course i love the city so i do miss um i do miss dublin very much I was, it was been second home to me and of course my job in uh Gateshead with royal as it is now royal Northern symphony it wasn't then um was great because it meant I got to work in my hometown, you know, yeah, with my yeah. folks and my family and all of that. And in that marvelous hall, which is one of the great halls of the world, it is. You know, it's wonderful. Stage. It really is. Mm. Um, and different challenges there because it was chamber orchestra, you know. So I had to uh, find a way around the repertoire. And um, but 
you know, they were up for expanding the orchestra on occasion. So again, we did lots of different stuff there. And um, my time in Scotland with the with the BBC Scottish was was um, I mean, I still go there. I'm still making records with them. I haven't my contract finished uh, with the job, but um, you know, we did did and do some fabulous repertoires. The first time I did the um, Congo Symphony was there, and all those Raspigi tone poems, which I've um, now recorded. So I felt I was getting a load of great stuff under my belt, and it's such a good orchestra. It really is. They play they play marvelously well. So yeah, I've enjoyed the positions that I've had very much. Before we leave RTE Concert Orchestra, uh, I just want to expand on that concert orchestra genre. Uh, I recently worked for the first time in Cologne with the WDR Funk House Orchestra, which is basically their concert orchestra. And they were saying that uh, RTE, the RTE Concert Orchestra and the BBC Concert Orchestra, they think they're probably the only three orchestras that, as you said, are willing to play absolutely anything. Um, the first time I worked there, I recorded the Nino Rota Harp Concerto the same day that we recorded Let It Go from Frozen. And nobody was found this weird at all. Um, and so, yeah, RTE, I've worked over there, and they're great, aren't they? Just embracing everything. Yeah, and I think, you know, with certainly my experience was that, you know, you could play a Mozart piano concerto one day and then something live to film the next, and it would sound like a different orchestra because there would be a, a, an array of different styles and playing techniques at your disposal. And I mean, that didn't happen overnight, you know, it was something no, no, we no. really, 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 really had to to work at. Um, but I felt very proud of the flexibility of the orchestra. And I was most proud when guest conductors would ring me up or text me and say um, how marvelous they, they thought the band was and how how closely they followed. And that was one thing I was you know, really yeah. hot on. Everything was, you could be as spontaneous as you liked because everything was in the palm of your hand and they came with you around every corner. Um, as a consequence, I think, of having to play so much music, had to, had to get through so much music. And I don't just mean sort of plowing through stuff and hacking your way through stuff, you know, playing with authority and finesse in so many um, genres. Yeah, I was very, very proud. Uh, as you said, the first ever time you conducted the Korngold Symphony in F sharp was with the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra, but you've since recorded it with the Symphony of London and have made quite a lot of recordings, both with your own orchestra and with the RLPO, as, uh, along with others. Do you enjoy recording? Is it um, a process you enjoy? Um, and how do you go about it to make it as fresh as possible? I love recording. I really do. I've made a lot of records and um, I think it's great to get the chance to put down on disc a piece that you've, you've done a few times and you, you, you feel strongly about. I suppose my approach to recording varies from, from piece to piece in as much as if I'm doing a, a big romantic symphony and I've done it a lot and the players know it, then you can go for fairly long takes, especially if, as we do, you know, with the BBC Philharmonic or the BBC Scottish, you you, you do a, a concert, particularly in Manchester, we do a concert studio, we rehearse uh, for the concert, then we record it in the days which follow the concert. So you've you've already you've already got a kind of interpretation there and it's under everybody's finger. So you can you can kind of go big long stretches 
complete movements and what have you. Um, the Richard Rodney Bennett series that I'm working on at the moment, I think we've done four or five volumes and for Shandos, uh, the BBC Scottish, uh, you're dealing with music which nobody knows, which in some cases is fiercely difficult and um, you haven't had a chance to be at the concert. So then, of course, your, your approach changes and as much as you find a section, you work on it, you record that section. You know, and, and, and it's a it's a bittier process, but at the end of the day, the listener shouldn't notice any difference. And that's when working with a producer that you really respect, like, you know, Brian Pigeon or Mike George or Andrew Keener, one of these people, you, you absolutely trust them with your life. And engineers are the same, you know, you've got some great engineers. So you build up these relationships with, with orchestras and producers that you can that you can trust and that's a, of course in and a big shortcut. I love making records. I played on your That's Entertainment record with the John Wilson Orchestra, and I remember those sessions being great fun, not just because the music was wonderful, but also your attitude through it all was so positive and so good-humoured and good-natured that it just meant the recording wasn't a chore. Often I've done other recordings when you're, you're almost looking at the watch thinking, my God, I've got another hour of this to go yet. But I remember those distinctly, just those days flew past. Well, I'm glad it's also, I mean, I, I do want to give everybody, you know, a good time. And I think you want to make music for the joy of it, not the fear of it. But the other thing about a record is it's like, not just for Christmas, you know, it's for life. And you, every note on a record, I want to get as close as I can to my idea of perfection. And of course, the perfect is so often the enemy of the good. So it's getting that balance between really, really pushing everybody to, to their limits, but not not killing them at the same time. Um, but I think, you know, Andrew Haveron summed it up the other day. We were making a record with Symphonia of London, um, and he said to me, "These recording weeks are absolutely knackering. We come away from these weeks absolutely knackered." He said, "But we wouldn't have it any other way. We'd feel shortchanged if we didn't." And I think it's the, the, the players take away something from that thing of of really like reaching for the stars, you know, with, with, with great music, your it was Previn, I think, who said your final goals are always out of reach and any, the work will always be greater than any performance you can give of it. So it's worth having a, a go to try, you know, get it as, as good as you possibly can. When you come to learn a new score, do you learn it firstly sitting at the piano or do you sit at a desk and learn it? And in learning that score, are you a marker of scores or do you like to keep them nice and clean? When I first started conducting, I used to try and learn every note of every part obsessively before I took the first rehearsal. And of course, as I got busier, that wasn't possible. I didn't have six months just to learn one piece. And I remember getting some advice from Zachary, who said to me, don't kill yourself um, trying to sort of do the perfect interpretation when you do a symphony for the first time, you know, learn the music well enough to be able to take the rehearsal, you know, you know how the piece goes, you know, the detail of the score, you're not trying to accomplish on your first outing what you will again eventually get second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time you do a piece. 
Yeah. And it was very sound advice. Um, so my approach these days when I'm getting through, you know, a lot of repertoire is learn how the piece goes. I don't sit at the piano because I can look at a score and I can hear it because I've written so much music down that I can, I know how the alto flute transposes and the horns and E flat and, you know, all that. So that, that, my, my, my brain kind of computes that. I use the score. It's there in front of me. I don't try and do things from memory. Uh, not until I've done it a few times. I'll, I, and even then, I won't be doing it from memory. But I'll be, I'll be turning five or six pages at once. Yes. Yeah. 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 Kind of thing. And then I'm an obsessive marker upper because I think, you know, many's the time in my life when the phone has rang and said can you jump in for such and such and then you get your score off the shelf with all your own markings and it's a shortcut that you need to help you out um and the other reason i think marking up works for me is it it helps me to assimilate the information um it's a starting point you know sort of marking in phrase lengths and dynamics and sort of leading instruments and all that it's a really good way of taking what is essentially a nebulous process and putting some kind of structure into it and then what I, what I often find is if I've done a piece many times uh, I will buy a new score and start with a clean score and and keep it clean and just mm. not let my old cluttered thoughts get in the way Mm, yeah, I've done that as well. And I know another conductor has said exactly the same, but their scores eventually became so encrusted with their own writings from early performances that, that they no longer agreed with that a clean score was the only way forward. Yeah, I also agree with you about the late cancellations jump in, as they're commonly called, where you've got two days or less, sometimes 24 hours, and you just grab your score off the shelf and think, I know. I've done this piece before and my thoughts are in there and my markings are in there. But I, I don't even need to open it until I stand in front of the rehearsal because I just know the piece and I know what's written in there. And yeah, it helps yeah. you so much. Yeah. 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 Whereas some conductors have said they just don't write anything in. And that's also good if they've got that sort of mind that can think about architecture and, and all of that and not need any help. Good for them. I can't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was watching a conductor the other day. Um, Lauv Sharni with the Philharmonia um, did brilliant Prokofiev concert, um, uh, Romeo and Juliet, and didn't use a score for the concerto either. Did the whole thing from memory, was on top of every instrumental cue, everything, uh, and no music for any of it. It's like, I, 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 that's very impressive. I can't do that. <laughs> Me neither. I think I can do By the Sleepy Lagoon without the music. <laughs> Possibly the, the, the dam busters march, but, but they're, they're my pieces from memory. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the watch that you wear regularly. I used to wear Eric Coates' watch because his son bequeathed it to me, but um, you know what, it's 72 years old now and it's it's precious and you've seen it and you know about watches mm-hmm. it's very beautiful and i've retired it to a safe and i will occasionally wear it for fancy occasions but as i rarely go anywhere <laughs> it doesn't get <laughs> it doesn't get many outings but i i recently uh 
sent it to Vacheron in Geneva to have a complete overhaul and it cost a fortune. And I thought, right, that's it. I'm not going to, I'm not going to expose this to the elements too much now. I'm going to keep it pristine. It is an extremely beautiful thing. And I think it, it had a twin. I seem to remember us talking about the fact that yes, did, when yeah. Eric Coates got it, uh, Will, William Walton also got yeah. exactly the same watch. They were both yeah. presented uh, in 1948 with the same watch as a thank you present from the PRS for going to it was Argentina uh, as delegates when there was some copyright conference. Yeah, so somewhere somebody has Walton's uh, a twin watch. Yeah. yeah. But it was it would have been the time that Walton went to Buenos Aires and met his wife Susanna. So he left there with a wife and a watch. I, that may be right. The dates may tally actually. Yeah, nineteen forty-eight. Yeah, I'll, I'll check in my book. John, it's ten questions time, and. Let's start with number one. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, um, sound that I love. Birdsong, of course. Um, and I live in the middle of London and I don't have a garden. Um, and I miss the sounds of the birds. Uh, yeah, that's easy. Song, the noise that I hate, um, of people shouting in the street. Um, I live on the top of a block of flats and sometimes I open the window and you hear people shouting and screaming that drives me up the wall. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Oh, 24 hours free and anything's possible. Mm, anything. Oh. Right now, if I had 24 hours free and anything was possible, I would like somebody to fly me somewhere warm with the beautifully clean ocean and I'd like to go swimming in the sea for the whole day. That would suit me down to the ground. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Oh, I'm only allowed one. No, you Come can on. have more than one. You can have more than one. Um, Barbara Ollie, George Zell, Munch, Paul Parry, Fritz Reiner. Like, don't ask me just one. You know, <laughs> I, I, I love those conductors who were orchestra builders mm, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, when I think of what Barbara Ollie did with the Halle and what Zell did in Cleveland which was a miracle an mm. absolute miracle mm. and Paul Perry in Detroit and then the other great miracle uh, Simon in Birmingham yeah 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 all, all the things that Simon did in terms of not just the dazzling playing that he got, but the um, the repertory. Mm. Astonishing. And you were there through, I guess, a lot of it. I was there for the last eight years of it, yeah. 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 Um, and it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And who would be a favourite current conductor? You know, I'm going to say Neil Thompson, because he's not famous but he was my teacher at the RCM and he has an orchestra in Brazil and he's worked miracles with them. And he's always been, for me, the conductor I've really respected and he's got such integrity as a conductor. 
as a musician, um, more people need to see just what a great artist he is. Um, and yeah, you know, we're, we're mates because we were at college together and all that, but that's kind of besides the point. He, he, he's, he's just such a, he's such a, a complete conductor. Um, of course, Simon Rattle, because some of the most exciting concerts and records that Bruckner 80 did with Yellow, so it's possibly one of the best concerts I've ever been to. And then he has such sort of authority across the whole repertoire. Um, really, he's just marvellous. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Oof, what a question. Um, I mean, classical music, you know, doing, finding the perfect tempo uh, for a Mozart symphony or Beethoven mm. symphony, if there is such a thing. There's uh, never going to be definitive answers to things like that. Um, technically, you know, Puccini opera is pretty pretty tough pulling Madame Butterfly together with everything absolutely as it should be. Um, that's a challenge. Uh, Messiaen, the Couleur de la Cité Celeste drove me up the wall <laughs> with the technical <laughs> elements, you know. Um, but you can always learn those things. So yes, you can, yeah. yeah. If you've got enough time, you can learn to get, to get around those things. But Dealing with, you know, great masterpieces, the Brahms Symphony or what have you, when the work will always be greater than any performance you can give of it, uh, puts all of your final goals way out of reach, and they're always they're always the hardest things to conduct. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Pillow. There you are. <laughs> Travel pillow, man. It's absolutely essential. And I went to Munich just before Christmas for a week to work and uh, I forgot my bloody pillow. And the first thing I did was went and buy uh, uh, one of them Tempura support pillows. I hate those pillows when you get in hotels and you put your head on it and it just immediately sinks right down. I couldn't agree more. I hate those pillows myself. Totally loathe them. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Oh, the, just like somebody invented a sort of matter transporter. It's what I'd like. Mm. You know, getting from A to B. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to technology sort of taking care of that at some point in the, in the Star Trekian future when you can just press a button and be in Buenos Aires or Sydney or wherever. Yeah. Travel. I mean, of course, you know, it's wonderful to go to new places, but I find the older I get, it's, it does wear you out a bit. <laughs> it does. Great when you're there, though. Yeah. Have, yeah. You get to see a lot of the world. Yes, that is true. I think if, I'm just trying to think if there's any other, other irksome bits of the job, but I'm in a very privileged position in that I get to do something that I love for my living. So, really, honestly, um, I feel blessed that I'm able to do it at all. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt? Oh, well, you know, I love cooking, but it's 
my hobby and I reckon if it was if I'd become a professional chef I would probably all the joy might go out of it because I'd be doing it all day long um, just watching all these amazing doctors and nurses at work at the moment has been very inspiring and I think there must be tremendous sense of sort of satisfaction of being able to give so much back um, and so I did toy with being a uh, uh, wanting to be a doctor when I was a uh, teenager, even to the point I think I did A levels to set me up for for medical school. So it was it was on my radar. So perhaps something in medicine. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of a final meal and drink? Oh, so um, I think I would start with some fresh. Crab. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it'd be nice. Um, I would have four rib of roast beef with all the trimmings, horseradish, Yorkshire puddings, roast potatoes. I don't care how hot it is outside at the moment, that's what I'm having. <laughs> um, and I'd wash that down with a bottle of my favourite Brunello. And if I'm allowed a pudding, of course. After that, um, you know, I kind of make a mean tiramisu. Am I allowed to have my own tiramisu? Of course you are. Yeah. There you are, then. Yeah, that's my last dinner. Or if I'm allowed a fish course, I'm going to shove a Dover sole in before the beef. <laughs> it's your last meal. You can have whatever you like. There's no repercussions. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, uh, an absolute pleasure to talk to you today and i look forward to seeing you personally very very soon thanks mike thanks for having me a mic on the podium was produced and devised by michael seal with music by ben dawson next time i chat to a choral conductor you could argue the choral conductor he is conductor laureate of the berlin radio choir Chorus Director of the London Symphony Chorus and he has been Chorus Director of the City of Birmingham Symphony Chorus for the last 37 years. Until then, bye bye.